If you have a Bible with you, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter, and Paul is mainly just dealing with the resurrection in this chapter, dedicated a whole chapter. But it is the foundational truth, as you'll see as we move on, to Christianity. Because without it, we don't have Christianity, period. There's no faith for us to have. But let's begin reading in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, and by which also you're saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not suitable or meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen? We can all say amen to that. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether if it were I or they, so we preach, and as a result, so you believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, well, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, vain, and your faith is also empty, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ, they're perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that sleep. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. For every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. And if you would move ahead to verse 35, we'll read to the end of the chapter. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? You fool, that which thou sowest is not made alive except it die. And that which you sow, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as it has pleased him. And to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. 
So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a life-giving spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. But I'm going to show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you'll just open all of our minds and hearts today to the glorious truth of the resurrection, not only our own, but the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and open our eyes to the meaning it has in our lives now. And I thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, there's a lot of different views today. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard some of them on life after death, reincarnation, you're not in your body anymore. A lot of people just think you go back to the worms, and that's becoming more and more prevalent. People's like, when you die, that's done. And that is a result of evolution. That's what you get as a result of that. And, but even for Christians, you know, a lot of Christians just have this image, because you watch too much TV, that we're just going to be floating around, playing our harps, having a good time. <laughs> or just you're in a place where you just get to do everything you've always wanted to do and just never had time. Golf, fishing, sleeping. Or in the case of the Muslims, they're like, we're looking forward to heaven in this afterlife because we get our seven virgins. And they're going to find out it doesn't work that way. But listen, the resurrection of the dead is not a doctrine that's emphasized in many churches today. And so people are influenced by what happens after they die by their culture. And that's what was happening here with the Corinthians. So look back in verse 12, because Paul's addressing this question mainly in this chapter. And he says in verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how are some of you saying that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's like, how are you saying that? That's not what I preached to you. So it wasn't that the Corinthians didn't believe 
in an afterlife, but like us, they were being heavily influenced by the culture they lived in. And in their case, it would have been Greek philosophy. So the afterlife at that time was not hopeful. It was not a hopeful thing for them. And one of their poets, a famous poet at that time, wrote that hopes are for the living, but the dead have no hope. And that's the way a lot of people today think. That's why suicide is rising steadily amongst young people, because they see no hope. And they have no scriptural foundation in their lives. But back then, and even now, the Greeks believed that matter in our bodies were inherently evil and dirty and disgusting, and that we were spirits trapped in our bodies. That's what they believed. And the Corinthians were buying in to this Greek philosophy. That's the struggle they were having. They were saying, well, there is no literal resurrection from the dead, no literal bodily resurrection. They believed they would be immortal, some of them, immortal souls without bodies. And they were probably, as a lot of people would have been back then, repulsed at the idea that you're going to be a spirit going back into this body. This, they know the body's corrupt. I mean, sickness has been around since Adam. Sickness, decay, weakness, growing old. And the thought that you're going to go back in that body and have to live again in that body would have been repulsive to them. And that's what Paul has to deal with, that issue in this chapter. So look in verse 35. That's what he's dealing with in verses 35 and following through there. Look, he says in verse 35, some raise the question, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? And look at his answer to him at the beginning of verse 36. He says, you fool, or you foolish one, or as we would say, you ignoramus. I mean, that's what he's telling them there. That's what that word is, you ignoramus. He says, look at seeds, he goes on to say. Look at seeds. Does the oak tree look anything like the acorn that falls in the ground? They don't look anything alike, do they? So what you plant, he's telling them, as he's talking there, is not what you get. But there is a connection, right? Because acorns, at least in our garden, don't produce asparagus. Actually, we don't have a garden, but they wouldn't. But when the acorn dies, what does it produce? It produces an oak tree, even though they don't look anything alike. But there is that connection. And so what we sow, what I just saw buried the other day, is not what we get back. Is it? But there is a connection to that. God transforms our earthly body and changes it. So we're in 1 Corinthians 15. Look what he says here again in verses 42 to 44. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown. That body you bury is corrupt. But the one that comes forth from the grave is nothing like that, is it? What does it say? It is raised in incorruption. The body that is sown is in dishonor, but it is raised. What comes forth is not dishonor, but glory. It's sown in weakness, a weak body, liable to get sick, all kinds of problems. But no, the one that is raised is one of power. It is sown a natural body, but what comes forth, that body is transformed into a spiritual body. There's a connection there. It's you. Your body is raised from the dead, but it is transformed and changed. And for those that are alive when the Lord comes, that transformation will take place without the grave, is what he's saying. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, transform bodies. Wow, could happen right now. Wouldn't that be something? 
that'd be a blessing, it really would. So we're going to have glorified bodies, spiritual bodies, but bodies nonetheless. And they'll be bodies like our Lord Jesus Christ. They can be handled. We'll be able to handle and hug each other in heaven, be able to eat. But pity the poor Muslims, they will not be sexual. That's for this side only. Be able to pass through closed doors. They will not decay. And if you like to take naps, you won't take any more naps in heaven. Nobody's going to be sleeping. It's light all the time. You won't need to sleep. Praise God. I take naps, but I hate them. <laughs> Power naps. But you never get sick, never feel pain. So the, we just read the body that we will have that the Lord gives us is going to be glorious. You're in pain now. It'll be incorruptible. No disease, spiritual and powerful. That is what our Lord has promised us. That's what Paul, we just read it in 1 Corinthians 15. But back in verse 12, Paul said what? He said, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead. Paul said, that's what I preached, that Christ rose from the dead. He preached the gospel. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this part, but in verses 3 to 5, he tells us what that gospel is. For I delivered, verse 3, unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the first thing. The second thing was that he was buried. Secondly, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And the fourth part of the gospel is that he was seen of Cephas. And he goes on to tell of all the other people that witnessed his bodily resurrection. And we have to take that by faith, but there was a lot of people that actually saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So look there. It's kind of neat the way this has worked out. But when it says that he was buried, that confirms what? It confirms what was said before, that Christ died because you only bury dead people, don't you? I hope. And that he was seen confirms what? What does that confirm? That he rose again, the statement before that. So some statements confirm other statements. In verse 3, it says Christ died for our sins and was buried. And that is essential because we all know we were wicked sinners that deserved death and everlasting hell. But the love of God, as we sang today, was displayed right there on that cross, wasn't it? Christ became our substitute and received the punishment we were due. We can't say that too many times. As we say, the fist of eternal justice, God's fist of eternal justice, was headed our way to knock us into an eternal hell. But in his love, the Lord Jesus Christ stepped in front of us, so to speak, and he took that fist that was coming our way, took the full force of it on our behalf, and paid the price, took the curse that we deserved. And after that, he died and was buried. But praise God, it didn't stop there in the tomb, did it? Because verse 4 says he rose again and adds according to the scriptures. So what scriptures is he talking about? Psalm 16 is what he's talking about where it is said there by David, You will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you allow thine holy one to see corruption. Now that may not mean much to us, but that was a strong argument to the Jewish believers in Acts 2. That's what Paul used. One of the verses he used to say, hey, he was raised from the dead. David died, but he's still in his tomb. He didn't raise from the dead, and so he's prophesying of this one that would. Oh, that spoke to those Jewish people a lot more than it does to us. 
And Paul also quoted that to the Jews in Acts 13. Strong argument. Because they would believe the scriptures as we should. That's the strongest argument you could make. And what about Jonah? We're saying the scriptures say that he died and rose again. What about Jonah? You say, what about Jonah? Well, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 12. Verses 38 to 40, Jesus said this, Certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he said the exact same thing. He gave the exact same quote back in Matthew 16. And Jesus said that. He points back to Jonah. He said that would be the great sign from heaven that he was the Son of God, that he would rise from the dead. And he said that would be a much greater sign than the temple itself being built in three days. No one in time has ever risen from the dead and not died again, should I add. No one has, except the Lord Jesus Christ. They came and asked him for a sign, and he pointed back to Jonah, and he told them this is what's going to happen. They knew that. They remembered that, but they refused to believe it. They went on and killed him, making sure his grave was sealed. And then they said, this is what he said would happen. And when it happened, they refused to believe it. So go to Matthew 27, beginning in verse 63. So the chief priests and the leaders, they come to Pilate, and they say this in verse 63, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. And Pilate said unto them, You have your watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. And so they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. And in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. But look over in verse 11. He is risen from the dead. And now when they were going... Behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all things that were done. So here's these guys setting the watch that they had put there, and they tell him this is exactly what happened. They know he raised from the dead, saw the angels. And look at verse 12. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews to this day. And so what does that say of the religious leaders that knew beyond a doubt that what he had told them had come to pass? To where they're actually trying to cover up 
the greatest cover-up of all time, I would say. And so they're worried that it's going to cost them their position, cost them their money. And what about ministers today? And there's many of them that won't preach about the resurrection or even worse, will deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ just so they can have their jobs. And I would say it's going to cost them a lot more than their jobs. It's going to cost them their eternal souls. Because Jesus told this to the religious leaders and says this to us. He says, I'm giving you all a search warrant. You all know the word. I'm giving you a search warrant. You should know this. He told them, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And he said, they are that which testify of me. But he went on to say, but you have a will and you will not come to me that you might have life. He said, how could you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? So go back to 1 Corinthians 15. So we saw that Jesus clearly rose again according to the scriptures. But it not only says that he rose again according to the scriptures, but that he showed himself to many. Verses 5 to 8 talks about that. He was seen of Cephas, verse 5, then of the 12, and then about 500. And Paul says most of them are still alive into this day. After that, James, the Lord's brother, and he says then of all the apostles. And Paul says, last of all, of me. And here's the question we need to ask ourselves and ask someone that is doubting the resurrection and how can we really know this happened? How can we believe this account that's written in the Bible? Were the ones that he showed himself to looking for a reason to deceive the world as the Pharisees, that's why we read that, as they accused them of? Were they looking for a reason to deceive the world? When you read the other accounts in Luke 24, it says when Mary and the other woman told the apostles and the other disciples that Jesus had rose from the dead, I'm saying, were they looking for a reason to deceive the world? I'd say just the opposite. You read Luke 24, when they told them Mary had seen the angel and said, he's not here, he's risen. They go back with joy to tell the apostles and others that were there. And it says their words seemed to them as idle tales and they believed them not. They weren't looking for a reason to deceive the world and believe something that wasn't true, just the opposite. And in that same chapter, we know that when he walked with those two men on the road to Emmaus, when they didn't know who he was and he overhears their talking, he asked them, he says, what is it you're talking about and why are you so sad? And they answered, we trusted that it would have been he, Jesus, which would have redeemed Israel. So these people weren't looking for a, an excuse or a reason to deceive the world. They actually had despaired at this point of any hope. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, we just read at 5 to 8, that Jesus appeared to many after he was arisen. And what was the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to all of those people? Because they were to be the ones that were witnesses. It's important. Witnesses of his resurrection. So a witness is a person that is present and actually sees, observes something that happens. And these people were going to be that. And that's what he tells them in Acts 1.8. You will receive power, and after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be witnesses into all the ends of the earth of what you have seen. The risen Lord under the uttermost parts of the earth. And Paul wrote this in Acts 13 to those Jews. And though they found no cause of death in him, 
yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses, Paul wrote, unto this people. These people, could you imagine? I'd have loved to have been one of them. Literally saw the risen Lord in his glorified body. And man, would you have trouble going around? Wow. Oh, I've seen him. I'm, there's no doubt about it, they'd be saying, right? But listen, if he only appeared to one or two, you know, the case could be made that they were just hallucinating or delusional, but not 500. Not the Apostle Paul later and the other apostles. You know, I told you all about my grandma laying there one day after my grandfather died, and she looks over, and there he is laying on the couch. That's what she said. Well, she could have been delusional or having a hallucination, you know. She could have just been overstressed from that death, from him dying. Either way, whether she's delusional or not, I mean, I'm not going to stake my life on that, what she saw. No way. You know, they, they talk about the Navy SEALs. Now, this is just something I read. I'm assuming this is true, but on what they call Hell Week, when they train them, those guys get three to five hours of sleep for the entire week, and they start suffering from sleep deprivation. And a lot of times, they, uh, what I read, hallucinations occur. And it's most common when those, those teams, they put them in teams and they paddle out to the ocean. And one sees, as he's going out, a train coming at the raft they're on. You know, another one sees an octopus raise out of the water and wave its hand at him. You know, and another one sees a large wall that they're going to crash into. And they point things out to the other seals, but no one else sees what they're seeing. Because they're hallucinating even though they're all in the same frame of mind, but they're not seeing the same thing, right? But listen, the people listed here in 1 Corinthians 15, they were not having an hallucination, nor were they delusional. So let's take this into a courtroom, questioning these 500-plus people. And you'd say, you'd ask them a question, a lawyer would, weren't you expecting him to be risen, and so you imagined him to be there, risen? And they would say, oh, no. Like we said, I despaired of ever seeing him again. Peter said, I was going back to fishing. I never thought I'd see him again. Well, maybe you just saw a spirit trying to act like Jesus. And one of them might say, well, yeah, that's what I thought at first. But I touched him, Thomas would say. I saw his wounds. I saw him eat some fish and honeycomb. Spirits don't do that. Well, we know you're lying. We know you are. We're either going to kill you or put you in jail. And they would say, you just don't understand. And this is what we should say. My Lord and my God is alive. And I have a purpose now to my life and a promise of a new body to live in his kingdom with him. And they would be saying, you go ahead. And they did. Do what you want to with me. I'm not going to deny what I know and what I've witnessed. I'll witness to it until you take my life. And they died bloody deaths, the apostles, all but John. You get Fox's Book of Martyrs. They would rip those guys in half. They would do, I mean, torture them. And it's happened down through the years. That's right. People that have seen the Lord either literally back then or they know he's alive like we do. They would take the worst tortures and rejoice because they knew what they had seen. And that's what would happen. So listen, if about 250 people like that took the witness stand, different people with different temperaments, different backgrounds, but they're all saying the same thing, 
And that's what Paul's saying here. I would believe that. And people did because it's the truth. So God provided as part of the gospel eyewitnesses and transformed lives to testify and to confirm the empty tomb. Because, listen, the empty tomb in and of itself doesn't prove anything. Do you know that? If all we had was an empty tomb, that's not the gospel, is it? It's there's eyewitnesses that saw him alive afterwards. The empty tomb would just confirm what the Pharisees and the leaders were saying. Oh, they just stole the body away. But they knew it was more than that. Oh, no, we have seen him. So many reliable witness accounts that could be confirmed at the time this was written. Paul's like, hey, you don't believe me? Most of these 500 people are alive right now. You can go ask them. Get the story from them. What happened? They'll tell you. That's what he's telling them. And listen, if that would have happened just like today, if someone tried to start a hoax, if people start going around, it doesn't take long to where everybody realizes there was nothing to that story. Right? And that didn't happen. Oh, no. Instead, that little seed of a church there with 12 people just sprouted and grew through the centuries <laughs> because of those witnesses. So Paul writes to these people in verse 15. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, look at verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. He's saying we would be lying about God, saying he raised Christ from the dead, and he never did. False witnesses, that would be a serious charge. But look what he said before that in verses 13 to 14. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He's saying, what I'm doing here today, what we've been coming in this church doing for over 30-some years, has all been a total waste of time if Jesus Christ was never raised from the dead. Everything you've heard, everything you believe, all the trials you've gone through were a waste. And your faith is a waste if he's, if he's not risen from the dead. This is Paul's version, for those of you that have seen the movie, if you haven't, you don't have to see it, of It's a Wonderful Life. You know, they take the man back and they said, well, here's what he's like, ah, my life's been no good up to this point. And he takes, the God takes the angel, takes him back and says, well, this is what life would have been like if you wouldn't have been here. Here's how all these people would have ended up. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, listen, if we're going to take the resurrection from the dead and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ away, well, this is what it means. It means you're still in your sins. It means my preaching has been a total waste of time. All these promises, all these things God will do, none of it's true. And your faith is empty, worthless. You think about it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ never happened. There is no union with Christ. There's no restored relationship with God. There's no spiritual blessings in heavenly places. There's no future kingdom to look forward to. And there's no love of God for us to experience. Right? Look at verse 17 and 19. He said, If Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. And you are yet in your sins, and they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, he says, we are of all men most miserable. And I'm telling you, my life was miserable before I knew the resurrected Lord. And if it never happened, we would all have no hope. We would all be more miserable than we are. <laughs> Hopefully you're not miserable. We should be filled with joy. But our lives would be miserable. We're going through all these trials and sacrifices for nothing. 
Say, man, why not eat, drink, and be merry if it's not true? Don't be an idiot. But it is true, right? We know it. We're thankful for verse 20. What does he say there in verse 20? But now Christ is risen from the dead and to become the first fruits of them that slept. So without the resurrection, no living Savior. Our trust, our faith is in what? What is our faith in? It's in a living person, is it not? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as I've quoted many times in 1 John 5, 12, he that has not a doctrine, not a church, not a Bible, he that has the Son has life. So our Christianity and our life is in a resurrected living person. And so I'd like to end by giving six guarantees that we receive because the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is true. Because a lot of people are like, man, I can't stand doctrine. I don't need it. How does it affect my daily walk? Well, we'll see how the resurrection affects our lives and how we live. And the first one is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ guarantees, and this is basic, but it still needs to be said that our sins are forgiven. Acts 5, it says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, raised him up, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him as God exalted to his right hand to be a prince and savior. For the living Savior gives repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. If he hadn't been raised from the dead, we would not have forgiveness of sins. And so what does the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ have to do with our forgiveness? Paul says if Jesus wasn't raised, we'd still be in our sins. Romans 4 says he was delivered for our offenses, but was raised again for our justification. So what is the penalty for sin? It's death. And if Jesus was still in the grave, then that would mean the penalty was still being paid or had never been paid. And so when he said those three words, it is finished, he was saying what? The complete penalty, the price, has been paid forever. Nothing else needs to be done. And so when God raised him from the dead, he was saying he accepted that payment that our Lord made. Once the payment is made, then guess what can happen? Life can be given to us. And that's what that verse in Acts 5 is saying. He was raised up and now he sheds forth repentance and forgiveness of sins because of what he did. So the power of death has been broken, and Jesus is the first fruits of a new race of men, the second Adam. Our sins are been forgiven. And the second thing his resurrection guarantees, and this is vital to me, his presence is with us everywhere we go. So he met his disciples after his resurrection and before his ascension on the mountain, and here's what he said, the Great Commission. All the missionaries need to listen up. He told them, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, he says, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And so that means he'll be with you when you go to the Dominican, to Guatemala, with us when we go into prison. And with everyone in here, whatever you go in your daily life. And it's all because of the resurrection. That we can have our Lord with us as we walk through this life. The one that has all power now in heaven and in earth is walking with us 
day by day. And so when we get in situations wherever we're at, we don't know what to do. He's there with us. And we can look to him and we can call on him, can we not? And if he was still in the grave, we would not be able to do that. And that, for me, is a tremendous blessing. It really is. And so are you in here today? You're single and you feel alone a lot of times? Well, Paul's been there. And he said this, he says, when I gave an answer, all men forsook me. But he said, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Well, how is that possible? Because we serve a living Savior, right? And he can stand with us and strengthen us when we're in hard times like Paul was. And Hebrews 4 says this. Now, I love this section. In Hebrews 4, but it begins 14 to 16 by saying, seeing then... You've got to see something first, that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. The Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, has passed into the heavens. He's there now. Jesus, the Son of God. And he says, because that's true, that our Lord has passed into the heavens, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that when you're in trouble, in a trial, in distress, which all of us are at times, he says, let us therefore... Because our great high priest, the one that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, is up there, alive, our Savior. He says, therefore, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we get in trouble, we need to remember, look, I'm not in this by myself. I'm looking at this trial, and it is way over my head. And we need to remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is there. To come, he's risen, he's alive, and he will come, it says, and give us mercy and grace personally to help us in our time of need. And we tend to forget that, don't we? Hebrews 4.16, we need to remember that. And the third thing, all of these to me are critical for our daily walk. The third thing is his resurrection guarantees his intercession on our behalf. With our sins, in 1 John 2, 1, it says, If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In other words, we sin. We've got an accuser up there at the throne. The devil is going to accuse us and condemn us. But when we repent, we have an advocate. Because we can't plead that we're sinless. We haven't done wrong. We're guilty. We have nothing to plead with ourselves. But our lawyer, you know what he pleads? His own righteousness. But he's alive to do that on our behalf. And so we don't have to feel condemned or wonder if. He's living and before the Father pleading his righteousness, our advocate, on our behalf. He's not pleading our unworthy lives. All we need is to repent and trust him to do that, to be our advocate. Hebrews 7 says this, And they were truly many priests because they were not allowed to continue by reason of death. The Old Testament priest died, that couldn't be any more help. He said, but this man, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Oh, my. You might say, I don't know anybody that will pray for me. I do. And I've thought that many times. I've even said it. Look, I appreciate your prayers, but I know the Lord Jesus Christ is always praying for me. And I need those prayers. <laughs> I do. And so what do you think allowed Peter to have that boldness that he had after he had denied the Lord? What did the Lord tell him? Jesus says, I will pray for you that your faith fail not. And he didn't stop. 
after the resurrection, he's praying for Peter, for all the apostles. And down through the ages, he's praying now for you if you're his child. Now, at all times. And believe me, that's intercession that we need. And fourthly, his resurrection guarantees, we've already talked about this, our glorified body. And I'll tell you, you know, you can tend to not think much of that because it just seems like it's down the road. But when you're involved <laughs> in someone going to be with the Lord, and all those promises just become alive. And that glorified body, and if you're hurting in here now, that has got to be something to look forward to. <laughs> it is. And even if you're not but that's a promise. Philippians, Paul wrote this, Our lifestyle, our conversation is in heaven. From hence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile body. Now, I don't care how good looking you are, what kind of shape you're in, how many nuts you eat. He's saying your body is vile. That's all of us, right? He'll change our vile body to be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Hallelujah. Amen. A glorious, glorified, eternal, spiritual body that doesn't need to sleep, doesn't hurt, no pain. Oh, man. It really is something to look forward to. I mean, can't say that enough. The fifth thing his resurrection guarantees is his healing hand. And boy, do we need that, don't we? We do. But turn to Acts 4, if you would, please. Look at Acts 4, beginning in verse 29. Well, here's what they were praying. We're skip, kind of skipping in on their prayer here before the Lord after they've been persecuted. Verse 29, and they said, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal. And signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitudes of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, and neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And look what it says in verse 33. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great Grace was upon them all. So they had prayed in their prayer that God would stretch forth his hand to heal. And that by mighty signs and wonders, the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted. And he said, that's what happened. Because when that power, and it will be in this church, when that power is manifested, you know what it exalts? Not us, but it exalts the fact that our Lord is alive. That's what he's saying there in verse 33. And with great power gave the apostles. It's a witness. When healings take place and God's power is manifested in a church in whatever way. And as we go forth and minister life and people are saved, it's a witness to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's proof to the world that our Savior is alive and our God is not dead because Muhammad's in the grave and buried. And so is Buddha. Their bones are in dust. Those people have no true hope. And so we need to be a witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ by praying and believing that his power will be manifested in our midst. Amen. And it'll bring glory to him and it'll be glory to us too and help us out. But mainly it'll bring glory to him, our exalted Savior. 
And the last thing, and not the least, his resurrection guarantees us is his everlasting love. No small thing. And I've read this verse many times over the last few days, but if you would turn to Romans 8. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, Paul writes, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. What a tremendous statement. He said, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who's going to charge us with anything because it is our God that justifies us? Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. Yea, he is the one that is what? Risen again. Who is, look at this, who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. Is your heart condemning you that you're so wicked God won't do anything for you? He says, who is he that condemns you? Whether your heart, the devil, or anyone else. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that stands up there and pleads our case and his righteousness on our behalf and is the one that is praying for us. Amen. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, our risen Lord? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we have all of that. What a beautiful passage. Because why? He's a risen Savior to us, right? Nothing can separate us from his love. But listen, the truth of the resurrection, it is the great, if not the greatest truth of Christianity. Because on it, Christianity is, I think we've seen, literally stands or falls. Our Christian faith stands or falls. Because if it's true, all the promises, the power, the hope, and the truth of the Bible are sure and steadfast. The resurrection happened. But if it's false, then none of it, none of what we do means anything at all. And we're the biggest fools that ever walked the earth because it would mean we have no forgiveness. There's no one there to help us. No one praying for us. He won't heal us. And where would the love of Christ be if the resurrection wasn't true? But it is true. And we have, haven't we, experienced our risen Lord. If you're a Christian sitting in there today, you have experienced the risen Lord. But more sure and steadfast, even in our experience, is as we've read, the scriptures confirm it that our Lord raised from the dead. And the apostles and 500 other witnesses confirm it. Undeniable eyewitnesses. And also, as we look through these years since the Lord has risen from the dead, the millions upon millions of conversions and changed lives confirm that our Lord has been risen from the dead. And listen, you and I are part of that history. We are down through the years. So the resurrection is the reason that we can know that our sins are forgiven, the price has been paid, and that God's love for us is secure. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray, and we'll have a time to worship our risen Lord. Amen. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word, that you've given us this word that we can look at now, though, even though these events took place thousands of years ago, Lord, that we know because it says in your word that Jesus Christ was crucified and buried and was risen again and was seen by a multitude. And we know that's true, Lord, and we can rest our faith and our hope upon that and that one day we will see you face to face and that one day, Lord, you will change these vile bodies that we have now into glorified bodies. That is the great hope you've given us and that we'll realize one day. And we're just so thankful for that, Father. The truth of the resurrection and we just thank you for the word that you've given us today. And I just ask you'll make it alive to all of our hearts and to know that we have a risen Savior that walks with us day by day. He's with us. And we just are so thankful for that. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.